I'm James, and this is the Chats with James podcast. In this episode, I'm chatting with Christopher Hunt. This episode was recorded on the 23rd of December, 2020. For more episodes and show notes, please visit jamesmunns.com slash podcast. New episodes of the podcast are released every Tuesday. Enjoy! Special thanks to Louis Zong for the music. So before we get too far into it, uh, I know we've chatted briefly on Twitter, but do you want to give a quick introduction of yourself? Because I, I haven't uh, chatted with you before, and just in case I decide sure. to publish this recording, it'd be good to to know a little bit more about you. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, first of all, it's, it's, just, it's great just, you know, to have a chat, right? Always yeah. good. And particularly this year, you know, it's been a strange one for everyone. And, you know, the opportunity of getting together in any way um you know i always always welcome but yeah i'm christopher hunt i um uh, you know what i've been programming since i was 18 uh which makes that therefore um too long <laughs> it makes it kind of like 37 uh, years of programming so far um and i i you know it, it still grabs me i remember the first computer program i wrote in basic on a TRS-80 and you know it's like print two plus three and it said five and I uh, I wanted to know <laughs> how, it, how it did that right you know instantly um, and I still don't know no um, but uh, so just over the over the years done lots of uh, different things I suppose um, gosh but had you summarized 30 ideas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I find it's you know, best to just focus on whatever you're most excited about right now. Because like you said, once you've been doing it long enough, it, it changes and some stuff sticks with you over time and some stuff doesn't. So it's hard to summarize everything. But usually yeah. what you're most excited about right now is usually something that's it's stuck with you for a reason. You know what I mean? Don't you find how interesting it is that things come a little bit full circle, right? So <laughs> when, I be- yeah, when I began, I um, began, I, uh, you know, very quickly found my way into 6502 assembly, right? And, uh, yeah, and, and, and now, you know, having been, I've spent a lot of uh, my, my working life, I suppose, since the 90s at least, on the JVM, uh, programming a lot, um, in the last several years, in Scala in particular, and um, you know, I'm, I'm very impressed in terms of what the JVM delivers. But now I found my way back to Rust, and in fact, actually, I would have spent most of my career programming in C and C plus plus, right? Then onto the JVM, so then Java. You know, I was at Spring Source, you know, for a long time. And then I was at uh, Lightband, which is formerly known as TypeSafe, which was founded by the, the author of Scala and of ACA, a toolkit for distributed, writing distributed systems. So that's where I spent, you know, that was five years. And then the last two years, I'm in this IoT space. Um, and I've found myself back at a point where I have a heap and a stack and a CPU, right? And it, you know, memory has become this first-class concern again, um, you know, because I think that we garbage-collected languages uh, or systems, you know, such as the, well, that, that, that JVM provides. You, you kind of lose 
uh, that perspective a little bit in terms of memory management. So I'm now back, uh, you know, with uh, with managing memory again, but safely, right? And uh, not managing your memory is supposed to be a feature, not a bug, right? I mean, I think that was that was this. If we talk about pendulum swings, that was the the. Correct me if you have a different opinion of it, but I mean, people working in C and C plus plus that saw so many mistakes with mismanaging memory in particular the the idea was to say let's just get as far away from that as possible and and say you know humans are fallible they'll never get it right by themselves so let's just switch to something where you've got something behind the scenes keeping an eye on that where where that was the big swing but now and that got us really far there's a lot of languages that that do that and allow developers to be really productive but then you just start hitting the limitations of the opposite direction and it, it's interesting to see people swing so far back the other way where they say okay we like the part where we didn't have to get it right or everything went wrong, but we want to go back to having control over it. Where I see Rust as being like one of those zigzag pendulum sort of approaches, where if you look at it from one dimension, the answer is we went from manually managing memory to not managing memory to manually managing memory again. But if you kind of like look at it at another angle, it went from being humans managing memory to humans not managing memory back to uh, humans managing memory, but with computers to help them. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. And actually, uh, you know, I mean, even back uh, in, in my C++ days, I was using, you know, Boost quite a mm. lot anyway. And, you know, I kind of didn't have a memory management issue, right? Uh, you know, it, it was never, never a really uh, a big problem that I was having because of the auto pointer and shared pointer. Um, so I never really got that far into C++ or Boost. Does it have kind of the the things that I would expect as a Rust? So I my history is a bit, I went C and then Python, well, a little bit of basic, then C, then Python, then Rust. So does Boost provide all kinds of things like um, reference counted pointers or shared pointers yeah. and things like that that you would ex expect as a Rust developer? It, it, it does indeed, yeah. Cool. Yeah. And uh, uh, now... I, Bear in mind, I haven't touched Boost and C++ for <laughs> quite some time now as well, you know. Um, but it certainly did, uh, you know, several years ago. And uh, mm. I think a lot of that's now worked its way into the C++ standards too, right? So in the later versions now, uh, you know, Boost was, uh, Boost was always that, um, the, you know, the, the, the training wheels for what should go into yeah. the C++ libraries, I think, at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, yeah I, I, I think you're right. You know, there, there is this, this pendulum, it is a pendulum effect, isn't it? You know, we, in the computer industry, we tend to go from one extreme to the other and then we go, hang on a second, but not quite that far back again. And then it oscillates kind of like political opinion as well yeah. <laughs> on, on certain things, you know? So I think that's what's happened. Another way of looking at it perhaps is, uh, that with uh, so the problem with uh, with garbage collection is that being abstracted from those memory management concerns uh, lands you in trouble, you know, because the the reality in a GC world is that you do still have to think about memory, right? It, it certainly you know eases things uh, for you perhaps, but. Um, you still need to think about it. You still need to profile your applications and make sure that they're really not leaking, that you're not holding onto resources that you should relinquish and so forth, um, because the GC can't do everything for you. And that's the trap. You know, uh, people don't see that. They don't profile and they do end up leaking memory, right? 
and you get these apps consuming gigabytes of RAM. You know, not, I mean, we talk, you know, in our world, you know, in, in terms of, we're, we're, we're concerned if we're over a K, you know, quite often yeah. on at the embedded end of things, right? Uh, you know, but in, in, the, in the JVM uh, world, it's quite normal to talk, certainly in terms of megabytes of RAM, and uh, often, you know, beyond that, which I find just uh, a bit crazy. So um, you may um, remember, because I've been looking up your career uh, a little bit as well, um, okay. that uh, you've been around long enough to remember Corba. Um, you okay. know, at least the advent, you know, the, you know, the, the when it was around, or when I say Corba, you probably go, oh yeah, I, I've heard of Corba or something, right? Other people, you know, their eyes kind of glaze over a little bit. But I've, I've certainly um, heard the concepts, but I, I, I can admit to never using it uh, actively in a, any project. So I've heard of the concept. Do you want to give a quick explanation of it? Yeah, well, it kind of all came out of well, the way I saw it anyway, out of Sun RPC. So back in the nineties, you know, Sun had Sun RPC, which is a C API that would allow you to call one function, you know, to another kind of thing. Uh, and abstract the network, you know, so you didn't have to deal with the network. And Corpo basically laid effectively on top of that, right? You okay. Know, you just, just sort of went beyond that um, a little bit. But the point being that um, you, you're abstracted from the network because you don't have to think about it. And then we quickly, well, relatively quickly learned that that was a bad thing, you know, that you need to understand that there is a network there, that when you send a message that it may not get to its destination, right? That you can't abstract over that. And so this is how I feel about programming languages and abstracting over memory, you know, that it, we're gonna look back at GC in general and see it as a bad thing, right? Because we need, we need to understand um, that memory is there and we do have to manage it. And sure, the compiler and other tooling can help us, right? But we shouldn't abstract over it. So I feel like we're going through a bit of a Corva moment here with, with memory, although it's lasted much longer, of course, um, <laughs> century. So I don't know, maybe time will prove me completely wrong on that one, you know, but that's how I feel about it. I'll just be... It'll be another 10 years before someone, I know, I mean, even folks in the Rust language have talked about, uh, so I'm going to go, I'm going to scroll backwards for a little bit. Um, one of my favorite technical blog posts, I think was from Instagram, where they talk about how they got their Python-based stack to be more predictable and reliable. And the answer was, in Python, Python really has two memory management schemes. So, like, it has reference counting and stack management, basically, where for the simple stuff, it will try and do very similar to Rust's RC type, where it just reference counts, and then if it hits zero, then it removes the item, which is fairly cheap. Um, and it, it works really well. And it, it's like 90% of the time you're going to be sticking to those kind of paradigms, which means it has to work much less hard. And then it kind of has this like 10% garbage collector where it has this, for anything that doesn't make sense, or there are cycles introduced to a reference counting and things like that, it does still have a global garbage collector, which will go through and periodically sweep that. Um, and Instagram for one of their, I, I think it was a Django-based service, but they just said, we realized that if we turned off garbage collection completely, and then when whenever any process hit like two gigabytes of RAM, we just kill it. And because they have like load balancers and stuff like that, where when they killed it, it would throw a 500, 
and the load balancer would just reissue that request to another because they were running you know like high reliability many yeah. nodes in parallel kind of thing so it really didn't uh matter to them because they would just you know one out of every million requests would get kicked because it was time for that process to die and they they sent it on somewhere else which is on one hand feels like a really hacky bodge but on the other hand kind of like what you're saying people have to understand the systems that they're building on top of and when you are instagram and you have built that level of redundancy and reliability you can only make that kind of hack work because you understand the total deployment system environment that you're working in even though it's yeah. much larger larger than one program um but things like that and it's it's interesting of what problems you decide to tackle because at the end of the day we all have only so much time and effort that we can put towards fixing any one problem. And sometimes the most efficient way to do that is, is to say like, all right, problems of scale are not my problem. I need to solve business logic problems or I need to solve those kinds of things. And for the first thousand concurrent users, usually just throwing extra computers at it works really well. But when you hit a certain level of scale of like trying to squeeze performance out of it, all of a sudden, like those abstractions fall apart because you, like you said, yeah. you have to realize that there is a network that acts in weird ways. And there are memory allocators that act in weird ways. And there's other systems that you're interacting with that interact in weird ways. And you can't really abstract over all of those. But I have yeah. seen people in Rust already, I feel like starting to lay the seeds of where things are going to swing the other way. Because some people have said, well, I really like some of the things that Rust has introduced, in particular the borrow checker and... Uh, like move by default. So like Rust's definition of move, this is something we have to go over in our trainings very often is Rust's definition of move is very different than, for example, C++'s definition of move. Um, and they're somewhat similar, but not exactly. And you get people that fall into this uncanny valley sometimes of they try and make assumptions based on what they've seen from C++ or Rust and try and take mm -hmm. it into the other domain and it has problems. But I'm speaking specifically about Rust's version of move semantics where like when you give something away, it is gone. You, you cannot touch it again. And they're like, yeah. well, what if we had something that was, you know, a scripting language or a, like, think Rust, not watered down, because that's an unfair term, but, like, m targeted more at kind of the Go or Java space, where you say, well, I want more control than Java or Go gives me over what I have, but I still have essentially the the parachute to say, like, I don't care if this is garbage collected or not. Like, I can just have a a box type or a magic box or something like that that just works and I can just pass it around and whether it's copy on write or whether it's reference counted or whatever I'd like it to be where you can just say like most of the time I don't really care and it will shake out fine but there's certainly something to be said about the like the cognitive overhead of having generics and lifetimes and borrow versus own code and things like that and I can definitely see that from either new people that I'm teaching or people who are trying to just say like, I, I'm not going to have a million concurrent users. I'm just going to have a hundred and it's going to be fine. I promise I'll throw a 16 gigs of Ram at it and I'm not going to worry about it. But like, yeah, it's really interesting of just what people, I feel like people charge up the things that they get fed up with. And like you release that pressure by swinging in the opposite direction. So like I'm tired of garbage collection. I'm, I'm tired of indeterministic systems or I'm tired of not having control. So I will swing exactly the opposite uh, of that and things like that. But I, I think there's, and there probably is no happy middle because someone's going to be upset at whatever happy middle you come up with. But I'm interested yeah. to see what the next violent swing is going to be and, and how much of it is influenced by Rust or what part of Rust they're going to throw away because they get angry at. You know what I mean? 
so I, I think, James, you've got to go and invent Rust script, right? I want to see Rust script. <laughs> I think Boats. I don't know if you've read Boats um, uh, blog posts about it, but Boats talks about a version of Rust that's less... I can't remember how they characterize it, um, but it, it it touches on some of these points of having like a, a different container and a slightly different model and things like that, and being able to fix a couple things that that don't fit well with Rust because Rust focuses very hard on that maximum level of controllability and the ability to work with embedded systems. Which for us, when we're working on embedded systems, we're glad that it exposes that capability because that's what makes it usable uh, for embedded systems. But if you're writing for example, async code is very difficult in a lot of times to make those lifetimes work out without doing a lot of gymnastics. Because if you have mm -hmm. multiple concurrent executors, whether they're on one core or multiple cores, and you have like non-linear code execution in particular, it's like lifetimes can be very difficult to work with that. And things like error handling and async concurrency in particular are two things that Rust is still very much working on from a, a, a theoretical interest. And this is what Boats really goes into in their blog post of, you know, if we had something that just said, we're not Rust, like, and it's okay. Like different languages can target different problem domains. But they were saying, you know, I think there's something there to that Rust script or whatever you want to call it of, of something that takes like 60% or 60 or 70% of the inspiration of Rust, but just says, we'll pay we're okay with a little bit of cost like not zero cost but like a little bit of cost is okay because it, it's kind of one of those 80 10 things by giving up 10 percent or 20 or 80 20 things of giving up 20 percent of the efficiency can get you an 80 percent more usable language or something like that where it just makes it easier for most people and it's not the solution for everyone like it probably won't work for us for embedded but if you're writing a still fairly performant async environment, for example, or CLI tools or things that are short-lived where you don't need maximum efficiency. There's something to be said. And I'm saying this as an embedded developer who does care about every single one of those things and every single one of those projects that I work on, but I definitely yeah. have sympathy for not everyone deals with the same problems that we do. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, uh, you, you know, you, you, you can't, you can't please everyone and that there, there should be no one tool, you know, that fits all problems and there should be therefore no one language that does so either, you know, um, so I'm, a, I'm actually, uh, uh, you know, comfortable with that. I'm comfortable with the fact that, um, you know, in my VS code world, I have, you know, C, C++, Rust, TypeScript, Scala, Java, uh, you know, all, you know, in my world. And, you know, sometimes I think I, my, my, I mean, thank God I need intelligent editors, you know, because I, I confuse the syntax between the languages all the time because I am context switching. But I'm okay with that, right? You know, um, and, you know, it's similar to when developing for iOS or for Android, which I also do, um, you know, I use Swift and Kotlin respectively, you know, to do so uh, because, you know, the tooling supports that really, really well. And, uh, you know, so there is, you know, I, I wrote down a few notes as you were talking there, just a flood of things that were sort of coming into my head. Um but uh, there's a cost of, of, of uh, you know, these abstractions. So, for example, the cost of thinking about the network, 
right? You know, if that cost is high, which was the premise of Sanar PC initially, right? You know, that the cost is high. Um, if the cost is high, then, you know, there's, there's good reason to try and abstract over it. You know, but I think what turned out there was that, you know, um, it, it, the cost actually isn't that high, right? And the cost isn't really that high of thinking about memory with languages like Rust uh, or C++ with, with boots, boot support or using later libraries and so forth. Um, you know, and so uh, I think there are some fallacies around this too. Right, that you have to use a, a, a GC language, you know, because the cost of managing is too high. Um, and, you know, I also kind of think that, please, you know, we're paid well in our industry in general, right? And for good reason, right? Because we're smart people in general, right? And we can handle the concept of memory and so forth, right? So, uh, uh, just again, going, I used to do a lot of um, software for the Palm Pilot. And I'm, yeah, I, I, I had a, uh, a brand called Time Traveler, actually. I, had, I, I ended up licensing it to Palm themselves. And uh, it, anyway, it's great fun. Um, but I remember Palm OS, you know, well, Palm Inc., you know, being really hesitant about exposing threads to, uh, to you know, the OS. Uh, API to make it a public API it always had threads right but it didn't expose them and uh, you know I was a, I was of the, the stance and still am you know just don't make these assumptions about the people who are programming you know they 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 will get it they sure they'll occasionally shoot themselves in the foot um, but don't take that ability away from them right you, you should expose it it should be there you know um, and yeah, anyway, so that's kind of how, that's one thing. And then we were talking, you mentioned, uh, you reminded me of uh, the Scala native. So there's a thing called Scala native, the Scala on the JVM, the Scala JS. I am a big Scala fan. In fact, actually, as a language, from a pure language point of view, Scala is still my favorite language, you know, overall. Just in terms of the, you know, it's, um, What's the word for this? Well, yeah, how you can just express a problem? Yeah, I think it does it really eloquently. Um, and uh, so the Scala JS, Scala JVM, uh, there was a Scala.net, but no longer, I don't think. And uh, there's now a Scala native as well. So they're targeting, uh, they go through LLVM at the back. Mm. And um, uh, the uh, one of the garbage collectors. Uh, out of the box, I think it's available, is, um, I can't remember what they call it exactly, you know, but it's like no GC in that it isn't going to, it's not going to garbage collect, right? And you think, oh my God. leak everything or? Yeah, it's never going to release memory, right? Perfect for CLI. Yeah. Right? It's not, it's not going to hang around for a long time, you know? It's going to do something and quit, right? So... Yeah. Fine, you know. So, and there was, and that reminded me as well. Then of wasn't there like uh, some missile, some ICBM or something like that? Yeah. that had a <laughs> you heard that one? Had oh yeah, I mean that's one of those those favorite apocryphal stories is that they say, well, you know, uh, yeah, as long as it doesn't exhaust memory before it explodes, then it's fine. Like, so you just <laughs> put enough memory in there. Exactly. Yeah. It's but it is similar to the CLI analogy, isn't it? Right. Yeah. You know, you, you, you're limited, and it goes back to what you were saying as well. 
Um, yeah, I yeah, mean, so if you, it's understanding your environment because the operating system is going to clean up that memory when you're done with it anyway. So, I mean, like, why bring your own garbage collector if the operating system is just going to do it as soon as it destroys your process? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 an interesting uh, it's an interesting idea, but but again, you know, just circling back, I, I again, I, I as a computer programmer, I embrace the fact that we should understand, you know, the, the heap and the stack, you know, at a minimum, right? I mean, like in the, in the JVM world, you very rarely consider the stack. The, the stack is not a concept, you know, in, in general. Um, and the, the stack depth for your functioning cores is just so so big, you know, it never really becomes a, a you know a, a, a first class concern until it does, and then <laughs> then you don't know until you have more. recursion or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah, that, and that's getting better too, you know. So languages like Scala, for example, will ensure that they implement Terraform recursion properly. Oh, okay. You know, so, um, you know, you actually have to annotate your function and say at tail rec and the compiler will ensure that that will be tail recursive. You know? Oh, cool. So, yeah, I've never, I've worked <laughs> with people who have used Scala. So like I, I've been Scala adjacent. So I've worked at a couple IoT companies and um, at least three or four years ago when people were building backend services for um, IoT platforms, Scala, at least in Berlin, seemed to be the most popular language that people were building those kind of services on top of. So um, I've helped, I've sat next to a lot of people developing Scala, but never really worked with it. So I, I understand conceptually how the language operates and how it compares to the JVM, for example, but I've never used it kind of hands-on. So I recognize terms like Scala or Akka just because I've heard people talking about them in the context of what we were working on. But yeah, I've never actually tried writing. I've worked with Java and that's the only JVM language. I've, I've worked with a lot of people who work on the JVM, like... Closure. I think Closure and Scala are probably the two most common that I've seen, other than Java itself. But yeah, it, it's yeah. definitely interesting to see how different languages solve those problems, especially when I imagine Scala does use recursion fairly heavily, especially for a lot of those. Uh, for I don't know. It seems like maybe correct me if I'm wrong that that Scala would be a language that leans pretty heavily on recursion. Uh, well, interestingly, I think uh, from an SDK point of view itself, you know, when you actually get in, and, and this is the beauty of Scala, I, I guess. I didn't think we'd be talking much about Scala, sorry, which is interesting. Um, it's something I know nothing it, about and you know lots about, so it's interesting for me to learn a bit about it. No worries, yeah. So, uh, so you know, it, from an implementation point of view, there's a lot of imperative programming going on. Right, you know, to achieve the functional abstraction. So, you know, on the functional uh, spectrum, it heavily leans towards uh, being functional, right? Um, but it doesn't prevent you from being imperative, not like Haskell or, you know, some of the purer functional languages. And so, most of the time, you're thinking in a functional way, you know, very expression oriented. Um, uh, deterministic sort of uh, way, you know, um, of, of, of expressing code. But isn't there like a, a language, uh, you know, family tree kind of thing, you know, just like spoken languages um, where uh, we have Rust and Scala and then that its parent, you know, up in the hierarchy uh, would be ML as a language, yep. you know. So 
I, I find Rust and Scarlet very similar. You know, they're mm. both expression oriented. Um, you know, being a Scala developer and going over to Rust, I actually found quite pleasing, right? There, there, there was a lot of commonality, particularly when it came to, um, you know, both languages have very uh, rich support for pattern matching. And, yeah. um, you know, I love in both languages how the compiler will ensure that you're catching all conditions or variants, you know, of those those pattern um, uh, branches, you know, I know there's a name for it, but I can't remember what they're called right now. But the match um, arms, or yeah, yeah for all cases, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. I, make sure that know, you have I, match arms that cover all cases of the patterns. Exactly right, you know, and of course the commonality really in those two languages that both have you know very strong type systems. Mm. You know, I think that's that, that's perhaps you know that. Plus their expression orientation, you know, um, makes them fairly easy, in quotes, to sort of transfer between. Although, again, I keep getting syntax, you know. I keep forgetting to put semicolons in things, you know, in mm. particular, you know, because Scala doesn't require semicolons. You know. um, yep, my uninformed um, area, I kind of have Haskell all the way on the right of in terms of, like, uh, type theory and capabilities of the type system i kind of have haskell there and i mean if you have something like c way on the other side and then i, I see rust sort of in the middle with maybe uh scala having at least from my impression a slightly stronger or more expressive type system than rusts but definitely yeah. like rust and scala being closer to each other than they are to either c or haskell but maybe scala being a little bit closer to haskell than rust is with my totally uninformed uh, opinion on that. But I feel like yeah, that's also changing I, over time and that some of the things that you couldn't express in the type system in Rust, kind of every year we get a little bit closer to being able to do those things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Scala 3 actually, uh, just just uh, just on that, um, is, is coming out. Like, I'm, say, I'm saying this year, but it's still not very much. Like a week, it. yeah. <laughs> but it's like pretty close. And, um, you know, that, uh, the way that's been put together, um, you know, is, is using various proofs uh, from, yeah, so Martin Odersky is the author of it, a friend of mine. Um, and it, it's, it's, you know, it's certainly got that formal proof aspect of it, which makes it really kind of solid academically, I, I suppose, you know, um, which is kind of nice. I think with both languages, though, you know, and uh, you know, this is as a developer, you 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 got to ask yourself why why am I using the tools that I'm using, right? And certainly both Scala and thinking in that sort of functional way of um, uh, you know thinking in terms of immutability, for example, even if it just went that far. Um, you know that gets you a you know a long way, but really the business benefit of of of, of this and why we choose to use these strongly typed languages versus dynamic ones um, is quality. Really, you know, at some point, you know, you have to verify, <clears throat> well, you should that um, that you know what you're expressing is correct. You have to validate that, and of course, if your tooling can do that, if you're giving it enough help. Um, for it to help you even more, then 
your your um, personal validation, you know, that those tests you write are of course are minimized. Yeah, Yeah, I definitely, I definitely find type systems are one of those things that are, I mean, they're just a tool like anything else. I mean, there's certainly, even when I was working in safety critical stuff, I mean, like that's the, the, one of the most refreshing things that I find of, of working in the safety critical industry is, is they're actually the first to admit that everyone is fallible. Like you can't really say there is no such thing as a perfect process. There is no perfect program. There is no perfect human. Like you, you design all of these systems to say they will fail. How yeah. can we maximize the amount of time until they fail? Or how can we add as many safeguards or, or what kind of process can we implement that helps us reduce the percentage? Because we admit, I, I guess the first step is admitting you have a problem. And that's one of those, like, you admit that it, it is not like when you, especially working in like 61508 or things like that, like, which is the safety standard, kind of the overarching functional safety standard that's used also in industrial and things like that. And automotive standards and things like that, at least in the US and Europe are based on that. And and the first thing that they say is, is there is no like, you can't say I'm aiming for 0% defects. There's really just aiming for like, it's like the difference of, am I aiming for 99%, three nines, four nines, or five nines? Because like 100% is not possible. Like everything will fail, but you can aim for different levels of nines of reliability and being able to say like, okay, what is an effective use of my time to have the compiler enforce for me? Because there are some things that the compiler is very good at enforcing. And there's some things that the compiler is just not very good at enforcing. And even in embedded, we've run into this where we use kind of this technique called type states, which is used in other languages, but in Rust, we kind of use it as ways of enforcing compile time invariants on state machines. And that was yeah. a really big explanation, but usually it means like you can't send data on the serial port unless the serial port has been configured and activated. And you do this yeah. through types where you start with like the unconfigured serial port, then you have the configured but inactive serial port then you have the configured and active serial port, and then you gain access. And we usually do this through traits or generics or things like that. At least that's how we implement it in Rust. Um, And it's really great because it gives you compile time checking that you never called the send bytes function before you do that. But you also have this trade-off of what if you want to configure and unconfigure your serial port at runtime? Like what if someone sends a command that says, disable serial port and then they can send a command at another time that says enable serial port where there's definitely like this uh, it's it's a it's a trade-off where it if you have all of these methods that are very strongly typed then all of a sudden your application to be able to handle both a configured and an unconfigured serial port gets really really complicated because you have to convince the compiler that you've handled every case in every situation which can be really challenging and I think it's one of those things that people, this is maybe one of those swinging back and forth things where I remember people actively saying things like JavaScript or Python, they like it because it is dynamic. They can do things and they don't have to worry about these things. And then you get the ops people more worried about it. And they're like, well, we have these bugs that only show up after they've been in production for 12 hours or something like that, which are a nightmare to go find. So you have this swing back to things like Rust or TypeScript and things like that, where people are like, I love types again, because it lets me see these errors at compile time, but I'm sure in five or 10 years, people will say it slows me down too much. Like I, I just want to like iterate on it or something like that. And I think, yeah, it's, it's one of those interesting pendulums of going back and forth or even in embedded, we've been trying to find that balance of, of how do you 
give most people who are okay with just configuring it once and getting all of those uh, compile time guarantees right, where you can even have stuff that says you can't accidentally try and set up a serial port on in a way that it's not allowed to be configured. Some like, uh, you know, combination of configuration options that don't make sense together or something like that. Um, but uh, how do you both expose that and have the ability to do runtime dynamic stuff? So one of the projects that I'm working on right now is for a, a hardware in the loop tester. So the idea is to be able to test hardware in an integration test kind of way where you have kind of a, if you've written a software test before, you definitely know the things like mocking and things like that. And hardware in the loop tests are very often, how do I mock physical systems? How do I pretend to push a button or see whether an LED was lit? Or how do I send data like I'm a lock on a door or something like that? Um, yeah. And to do yeah. that, I, I'm trying to build a piece of hardware that allows you to like reconfigure it dynamically so that you can pretend to be a bunch of different stuff at the same time. And trying to do this in right. Rust has been a bit of a challenge because everything's designed to be very safe and that you can only get it right and that you don't have to worry about any of these things at runtime. But I want to worry about these things at runtime because that's really the only way I can write one program that will work with any different kind of test, not just one specific test. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, it sort of, uh, you're making me think about finite state machines, right? Yeah. And their implementation, you know, in, in Rust. Um, and, and you know, in fact, so I'm I'm relatively new to the embedded world, right? I mean, I am new to the embedded world. Uh, I mean, I, of course, very early on um, assembly programming and so forth, you know. But um, <clears throat> the uh, uh, what I ended up doing. So so the first thing that's now coming to a bit of an, an end um, is well, actually, I was asked this year to develop. Uh, uh, something for the health domain uh, by a client of mine uh, for it was a, ha a digital hand washing guidance display using an Android tablet. Yeah, and so that's gone into multiple hospitals and schools now, and it, you know it's actually it's in production. Um, and actually, that was quite funny, you know, because they said, "Look, we need this this Android based thing. It uses face detection to understand when someone's washing their hands and all that kind of stuff." Um, and uh, we need a few others. It's got a few other stimuli as well. And, um, and it's just a cheap 200 buck, you know, Android tablet that you can just retrofit to any base of really, you know. Yeah. Um, and so that, that was, that's interesting. And that then got me onto Bluetooth and Bluetooth meshing and that kind of stuff. And then they wanted uh, sensors for hand sanitizers. So that's what I'm currently doing now. I'm building a hand sanitizer sensor. And the way I went about this is, again, sticking with Bluetooth and, uh, you know, Nordic seem to be the experts on Bluetooth, all things Bluetooth when it comes to it after a bit of research. So I, you know, bought myself an NRF 52840DK uh, development book kit, um, which I've been really impressed with, actually. Um, and, you know, a couple of other little devices as well. And the way I went about this, though, and I'm interested to gain your 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 appraisal of this, is um, I wanted to stick with the using the Nordic API and be and stay in C for you know those bits that required the conditional compilation, you know, so yeah. forth. I wanted to be kind of like out-of-the-box out Nordic because it was a whole new world to me. And um, I wanted uh, to be able to lean on Nordic support and forums as much as possible, 
right? Yeah. Which turned out to be a really good strategy. <laughs> yeah, I've heard you nothing know? but really great stuff about their their forums and support. I don't know if they'll actually take questions about Rust yet, but the folks that I know that have put Nordic systems into production have always said that the, they have one of the best community support out there. And certainly as, as a developer who's even written drivers in Rust, like their data sheets and even their, their C software libraries tend to be much, much better than most of the embedded vendors that I've seen out in in the world. Yeah, you know, I've been very impressed with them, so I certainly recommend that to others. Um, but what, what I then did, though, was that I have a little finite state machine representing mm -hmm. my app itself, right? The, you know, the business logic, the guts of it, right? And I wrote that in Rust. And then... How did you do that? Because there's a lot of different approaches to, to state machines. And I, uh, I might be showing my cards here a little bit. I have a lot of interest in both finite and hierarchical state machines. And I have a strong belief that every piece of software you write is a state machine. You just decide whether you're going to recognize it or not and implicitly build a state machine. But I'd love, to know, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to know what technique you decided to use for your finite state machine, especially in embedded Rust. Okay, um, well, it broadly, so broadly, uh, uh, you know, obviously, um, I used uh, uh, BindGen, the C BindGen. Mm -hmm. uh, hang on, which way around is it? Yeah, C BindGen, BindGen lets Rust call C. C yeah. BindGen no, lets point. C called Rust. Yeah. Yeah, C BindGen. Yeah, yeah. So I started with that. Right. So, you know, instantly, and, you know, me and Rust don't go that far back either. Right. And, uh, you know, so like instantly I've, I've, I've created myself a very interesting world, you know, fairly new to embedded, fairly new to Rust. And, you know, let's let's make all these things talk. And I, I but I got there. And um, uh, so in, in essence, it comes down to well, broadly, it comes down to one function calling from um, from the world of, of C. Right, and that is, uh, and this is all from my my ACA um, experience, uh, where in ACA there is this thing called ACA persistence, which is an event sourcing model. In effect, it is a finite state machine. Right. Mm -hmm. um, actually, just in slightly more detail, there's two functions that you should be concerned about. Right. One is that uh, you call it, you you give it your current your your, your current state. You give it a command and it will yield an effect, all right? And that okay. effect can, have, can yield multiple events, okay? That's, okay? that's function one. Then the second function is to take a state and an event and yield a new state, okay. right? And that those two functions are um, the, the basic requirements for event sourcing. And you can, for example, replay events and get to the state that you're at just by calling that second function, right? So if yeah. you wanted to persist your state in Flash, you could do so by just calling that. And then when you're finished, you're back onto calling commands because you don't want to call, you know, keep sending commands. You don't want to reproduce those side effects. You don't want to do stuff. You just want to bring yourself to the state that you were at. Right, and then now in that state, then you can start. I'll write a blog post on this, you know, because <laughs> it's, it's, it's probably quite hard to explain. But it, in, that's how I how I structured things with this uh, Rust program as well. And so I have a state machine, then with these two functions, and I have uh, a couple of enums 
that I can show you if you want. I, is that a good idea or uh, is that I, not? I'm going to publish this. So it, it depends on whether you want it to be public, public or just shared with me. You can you can also send me links after the after the recording if you'd like. Well, I'll I tell you what, I'll make a promise that I will produce a, a blog post. Okay. You know, because it's, it's probably uh, the easier thing, thing to do there. And, yeah. um, you know, but in, a, in, in, in essence, the commands are an enum. Uh, and the events are an enum, right? Yeah. And that, and that's it. And uh, that the command function is a match statement, and the uh, events uh, function is also a match statement, and um, and it's highly testable, you know. Which yeah. uh, again, the, you know, actually one really I love this about Rust how you can just embed the tests in the same file. I mean, that is just like. There is, you really have no excuse to avoid writing a test, do you? <laughs> yeah. I think the, yeah. the thing that I've usually run into is, is there's a tendency to want to carry all of your relevant data because in, you know, in Rust, in, in Rust, enums can carry data as part yeah. of, like variants can have different data. Um, yes. And often where I get myself in trouble is when I try and go, oh, well, you know, these three states have will have this data and these two states will have this data and this state has different data and this state has different data and wanting to carry around all of that data inside of the enum itself as values of the variants of the enum. And this can often make it really challenging to write those match statements, particularly when you're trying to mix and match borrowing and ownership of, okay, well, I just need to borrow the data here so that I can call some function, but I'm not going to be mutating the state. But in some cases, I need to totally own the data because I need to mutate it and create this other state where I tend to have this. Uh, let me know if you've ended up doing this, but in a lot of state machines where I end up using enums and match statements very heavily, almost all of my state enums have one invalid state where what I almost always end up doing is I end up at the top of my uh, state mutation function. The first thing I do is I swap the current state for an invalid state so that I can have full ownership, not a borrowed ownership of the data, use mm -hmm. it for a while. And then at the end, essentially I save next state into another variable. And then if, uh, then at the end, then I swap that back into the uh, borrowed data. And part of this may just be how I'm using, in particular, I use the Arctic framework a lot where you have these resources which are persistent over the lifetime of the program and allows you to share them across different tasks and things like that. But that means that you never really have full ownership of them. You only have a mutable borrow of them, which means you can't really take them by ownership or you can't take anything that is a resource by ownership because you only have mutable reference to it. So you have to do this kind of like, it's called the Joe. I love, uh, I think Alexei, the author of uh, Rust Analyzer called it the Jones pattern, which is like Indiana Jones. You can't really just take the thing off the pedestal. You have to exchange it really quickly using something like studmem swap to exchange uh, like the invalid variant for the actual variant, use it for a while and then swap it back. I know Alexei has a whole blog post about the, uh, the Jones pattern, but I'm interested to see. And if you, if your state machine really is that you take everything by ownership and for example, your state mutation methods aren't methods of the enum itself. So you don't have something like enum type dot handle event. For example, if you just have yeah. a function like a free function that takes ownership yeah. of the current state and then returns a wholly owned new state, 
that's usually the way you get around that. But I can't always structure my programs like that, or I don't do it by default without thinking about that direction first. So how I went about this, right, and again, being new uh, to Russ, um, was to use the combo of RC and Refsa, right? Mm, okay. And, you know, effectively share my state, um, the actual state amongst those state okay. emails themselves. And look, look, you know, I know, of course, Russ offers various escapes, right? Of course, we have Unsafe and, um, and we have Restcell, which, you know, is effectively sort of saying, well, the compiler can't, can't help you as much we'll as... check it know. live. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, um, you know, you do have to, therefore, you should improve your, your unit testing around that, right? Which is, you know... Um, you know what? It works out well. And, you know, I kind of feel about sometimes it feels a bit naughty to use these things, right? But it's kind of like, well, they're there. And, yeah. okay, you know, you should think about it, definitely, right? And think hard about it and stuff. But in this instance, it, it kind of feels good. Um, so, it, you know, the, the and it's certainly certainly efficient, which was, you know, of course, yeah. what I was looking for as well in this, um, in this very highly resource constrained environment. You know, so I want to, you know, I, I, and I, what I do like about Rust again, you know, with its, its memory management situation is it really, of course, makes you think about copying. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, it brings that to the fore, right? So, you know, that's, that's something that you like to avoid, right? Because there's a cost, but not, you know, and but it's not cheap, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, the, 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 you know, you should just think about it. And again, it's like actors, you know, in the, in, in, in the JVL, in you know, with, with ACA and other types of actors. Again, they're making you think about the network. They're going, you know what? This could play on, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that. That, you know, that's what I kind of like about those those sorts of things. So I, I went that approach, and then I just, uh, uh, you know, I, I uh, run all the unit tests locally, of course, on, on my on my desktop, um, and then I just target the the uh, the ARM EB whatever it is none thing uh, target. Uh, um, you know, when I want to build for Cortex M, and uh, then I build a static library uh, via Cargo. Yeah. Um, which I then uh, use C bind gen to create my C bindings, which I've got to say that that's really nice. You know, the yeah. C interface generated are really good. Um, and then just, uh, you know, that then becomes uh, something I consume from my mate file on my Nordic project. So I end up, uh, you know, probably, um, I think there's, that's were probably, 10% rust, the rest the kind of stuff, but um, the 10% is, is the most crucial 10% as well. That's definitely a technique that I've used that I recommend really highly to people, especially people who are getting new into rust, is that you don't need to, well, I mean, I think there's a lot of value in having a wholly rust code base, but that's not always the right engineering decision to be made. I mean, I've helped customers where we picked one or two problem areas that made a lot of sense to do it in Rust. Um, usually the one that I go to as my kind of like go-to example is message serialization, deserialization, parsing and encoding are, are like 
usually if people are like, where should I start with Rust? Those are usually the four places that I suggest because those are the people, those are the areas where people can get them most wrong in other languages. And Rust makes it so easy to get right. Whether it's using Saturday or using something like Nom for parsing, or you know, there's a bunch of different tools that are all applicable to embedded. And like you said, it's the I've done this for customers before, where we end up just having uh, the trick of how to do FFI effectively is to do it as little as possible. And like you said, if you have two functions and that's your seam between the two worlds, it makes it really easy to think about it. It makes it really easy to integrate into a build system. So it's good to hear that you took that approach because that's definitely one of the things that I suggest to most of my clients when they're looking at, usually I say, well, try and do a whole Rust project somewhere else, like test tooling or infrastructure or CLI tools or things like that, where you can get like a real taste of what a whole Rust program is. But if you really want to get it going in your embedded system, especially if you don't have any Rust experts in house who have done this a couple times before, pick the one problem area and make it one or two functions and treat it like any other external library, because then you'll gain that experience of how to build the Rust code, how to think about it. And then you get all of that like compile time confidence of the most problematic parts of your code base that whether it's like you said, event handling or state machines or serialization or deserialization or any of these problems, like these are all really good cases of, well, we can draw a really clean box around it because it's not interacting with hardware and it's not managing its own memory. It's not doing any of this. So it's really easy, both from an API level and a build system level to draw a really clean box around it and just say, that's Rust and that's C. And like the, the most complicated thing is when people end up with this kind of like interlinked mishmash of C and C++ where you have to thread the needle between the two different languages of like, okay, well this half of the system is in C and this half is in Rust and you keep having to switch and we talked about context switching before, like mm-hmm. it makes it really hard because C and Rust and even C++ and Rust are drastically different languages on what they expect. And as a programmer to have to switch between those domains is going to introduce errors because your brain will slip at some point and you'll confuse C++'s move with Rust's move in some place. And you'll make some wrong assumption somewhere that will be really subtle that works 99% of the time and won't work that last 1% and it will drive you crazy. But yeah, definitely like it's good to hear that that's the approach you took because that's definitely what I recommend for teams, especially who have uh, mature products. And as someone who is uh, getting into more and more embedded stuff, I mean, you can essentially look at the Nordic tooling as a mature product that you're starting with and extending on top of because they have a lot of that Bluetooth support and things like that. And by by saying, okay, I'm not going to worry about the hardware abstraction layer. I'm just going to work at the business logic layer allows you to really... Ab- you know, learn a lot of those lessons incrementally. And I'm sure in your next project or the project after that, you're going to feel more confident to bite off a bigger chunk in Rust or, you know. Yeah, I was just going to say that actually, yeah. Actually, just a little hat tip to a a friend of mine, Kevin Lysart, who actually sort of encouraged me to take that approach as well. I didn't dream it up. Um, uh, Can I just say very quickly, while I remember, the biggest problem that I had between C and Rust was its size of enums. This caused me to lose four days tracking it down, right? Is this because, F short enums? Uh, yeah, so so C, well, you know, obviously will be sized to the magnitude of the enum itself, right? Uh, so Sometimes. Got, it depends on your compiler and your compiler settings. All I want to say to people out there is be explicit. Make it a 32-bit enum, right? That is just, you know, from a, a FFI point of view, uh, that, that cost me four days in assembly, yeah. trying to work out what was happening because it was my Rust code was jumping off into this vector. It just like 
completely somewhere else. And I was thinking, well, how did it end up there? You know, and then I was, that led me on this Danish garden path. Anyway, so that's uh, one thing I want to sort of say with that. And you're right about biting off a bigger chunk. You know, I can see how all these bits like fit together now, right? And uh, I, I want to ask you as well, what, what you think, uh, what your thoughts are uh, on Zephyr um, as an OS, as a real-time OS as well, because, uh, you know, I'm kind of looking at that next and the reason being instantly you know what what i feel i can gain from that more than anything is being able to and you talked about this earlier to test uh integration tests locally i can run it on my desktop i can run my device on my desktop and even pin it in with my bluetooth stack to 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 do everything off device you know that's the thing with embedded right you want to do as much as you can off device because you're quite limited what you can do on device. And so that's why I'm thinking in Zephyr, but I'll be interested. And also just quickly, Nordic seems to be putting a ton of investment into yep. Zephyr themselves. So yeah, what are your thoughts on Zephyr? Whew. Yeah, okay. So I totally agree with you on the F short enums. I've also spent two or three days on that because I had one system that we literally went from 255 enum variants to 256 enum variants. So the size of the enum went from being one byte to two bytes on the specific compiler that we were using. But we had two different projects using two different compilers because they were different architectures. And one of them decided to bump to two bytes. And one of them, I don't even know what it did. It did something different that was weird. Or maybe like one of them was big Endian and one of them was little Endian. So it made some of it work sometimes and some of it not work sometimes. And like, I was looking at Wireshark for like a week of trying to figure out why these messages changed and why only some of the systems broke. So yeah, I gave a whole talk like a year ago at a C++ conference about why using like wrapper packed and enums is like the worst idea on writing a network protocol because it will bite huh. you in subtle ways every single time. Um, about Zephyr. So I have another Twitter rant so that you, you keep bouncing off axes that I have to grind. Uh, one of them is I feel that, I, uh, so I'll start with, I think the Zephyr project is a really interesting take on that. And I think that they've taken a lot of the right design choices as an embedded operating system. And it's been really positive to see more and more of the ecosystem putting resources towards an open source project, even particularly Nordic. It seems like they are pushing almost to, to merge their mm. project specific work into Zephyr OS and just say, we officially support Zephyr OS. And that's the deal. I've, I thought I'd heard some rumors about that. I don't know if I've seen that officially or not. So I don't know how much of that is speculation versus reality, but they're definitely committed very hard. And you see Zephyr support being one of the first things that gets merged for any of their new platforms and things like that. So on one hand, it's it's a really good success story. I feel like an industry and as, a, uh, as an embedded operating system, I think it has made some very reasonable decisions and I love their ability to do those um, native targets. So this is one of the things that I really liked about RideOS if you've seen Riot OS before, is that they had, and even before that, Contiki, which was an even more bare bones embedded system, had some ability to run some, what I would call native targets where your hardware abstraction layer is just for an x86 machine. So your, your upper levels of the stack are still exactly the same. You just have a different hardware abstraction layer. And when you have a real-time operating system, it's very easy to swap between those because you're, you're dealing with the operating system layers as long as you're not writing operating system or kernel level code, for example. Um, and particularly around Bluetooth, they've chosen the HCI layer as essentially their operating system's opinionated segmentation point, which is what the Linux kernel does as well, where you have essentially like the low level modem and the high level protocol. 
And there's a strong line there. And you can either do that over a software barrier. If you have, for example, like a Nordic NRF 52, where you have the Bluetooth chip and your application on the same chip. If you have something yeah. like the NRF 53, where it's got two cores and one of them runs Bluetooth, you can run the protocol on one core and you can run the application on another core and you can do shared memory links in between the two cores. Or if you have like a really simple like NRF 51 or even one of the more simple like um, NXP Q9020 chips, which are super low cost Bluetooth parts, um, you can do that over like a serial port where you have your HCI link over a serial port and you have your application running on one core and you have a serial like RPC link to your Bluetooth modem that just speaks like HCI RPC more or less. And it's really great for abstraction, really great for testing, um, all these kind of things. So in general, I have a very positive approach or a positive opinion of the Zephyr project and I'm excited to see the stuff they're doing. That being said, I think that Real-time operating systems are very often an XY problem in that people reach for real-time operating systems because historically in C and C++ ecosystems, a distribution like that was the only way to get intercompatibility and libraries and components that worked out of the box with each other, particularly when you didn't have C or C++ has no blessed package manager or package repository or things like that. So you sort of had to join one fiefdom to get access to code that would compose well and work with each other. And I think most people are actually, the reason why people choose real-time operating systems like Zephyr or NutX or commercial offerings or uh, Contiki is because you're joining an ecosystem, essentially. And I think most people value the ecosystem more than they do the scheduler, if that makes sense. And so wow. people want the ecosystem but what they're signing up for is a real-time operating system. And my opinion is, at least in Rust, we have a chance to decouple those concepts because at least with the embedded working group and everything that we've done with embedded HAL, you are not tightly coupled to one operating environment to reuse the same libraries and use, reuse the same ecosystems and things like that. Because the chance of you being able to take a Zephyr uh, temperature sensor driver and dropping it unmodified into a Contiki OS or Riot OS or bare metal system and having it work out of the box, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's not what I've seen. The answer is you can make them work and they're architected well, which means it's not, if you know what you're doing, it's not a lot of rework to rework them and build the shim of the operating system to sort of make them work. But what we're doing with embedded Rust is, is rather using things like traits um, and compile time configuration to abstract over these things so that it isn't a portable issue, portability issue. Whether you're running async or not async or on one operating environment or another operating environment, whether you're using Arctic or bare metal or hopefully even TacOS or DroneOS or other environments that are working on that, or even Linux, that you don't have to change your code at all. Hopefully not even a feature flag. You just write a crate and publish it and you can do that. So on one hand, I think Zephyr OS is a very good project and you'll not see me disparaging them but i personally think at least my efforts and what i'm trying to do with the rust ecosystem is to solve a different problem and rather to decouple the 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 use of a real-time operating system from bringing an ecosystem to solving problems um because i think unquestionably having an ecosystem is a non-option these days uh you'd be shooting your, yourself in the foot to not 
be using some kind of ecosystem that allows you to utilize existing code, particularly open source code that other people have worked on and to collaborate with people in open source. Unquestionably, I think that is a goal. Yeah. I'm actually of the opinion that I think most embedded projects don't need an operating system. In fact, I think that they can get rid of a scheduler and messaging queues. Well, that they need much less of a scheduler and messaging queues than a traditional real-time operating system provides. Um, yeah. Particularly, I use Arctic a lot, which is essentially sort of like an operating system toolkit almost in that it, it, it has queues and it has concurrency and it has a scheduler, but they're all sort of like, they're more like building blocks than one monolithic kernel. Yeah. yeah. Um, kind of like the NRF uh, 5 SDK in, in that sense of, yeah. as well. Because it's yeah. got an app scheduler, for example, you know, that, that mm -hmm. I've leveraged as, as well, you know. Um, well, that, that's really enlightening. And it's great to get that insight, you know, from a Rust embedded point of view, because obviously um, I've only consumed a small part of Rust embedded to, do, to achieve well, uh, I, so I'm, I'm using CoreLXM Core, I think. Uh, I'm just having a look at my crate because um, I can't remember. I've not looked at it for so long. Uh, Cortex, so I'm just using Cortex, the CoreLXM yeah. package, and that's it, right? Um, and that's all I've needed to use for this, for this library itself. But your words, and I have thought about, you know, do I go further? Do I use the hardware abstraction layer in the runtime, or, you know, um, crates on offer. The only thing that I would um, I would have a difficult time about doing that with would be um, just interfacing with the soft devices, you know, that Nordic provides. I might be um, able to make your day, but there's a guy named Derbio who runs a company in Spain that does access control for. Uh, and sorry, I forgot. I only know his GitHub and Matrix handle. I don't. I can't remember his actual name right now. Um, yeah. but he works for a company, I think called Achilles, Achilles or something like that. Uh, I'm going to butcher this. I'll, I'll put notes somewhere, but, um, yeah, yeah. he's written an entire crate that wraps the NRF soft device. It's literally called NRF dash soft device. And he's been no building an, an async first runtime that's built on top of the NRF soft device. And he's, I believed they either are going to, or have already pushed this production where they've, they're, they're doing access control for hotels and rental properties and things like that and doing mesh Bluetooth over this. And then he's using, uh, because it needs to be certified because it's a production product, he's using the NRF soft device and he's just wrapped the entire thing around in Rust and has actually built an async runtime that also sits on top of that. So you can also do things like do async concurrency or, or the, the promise of async is that you let the compiler write your state machines for you rather than manually writing state machines because if you look at async concurrency or the async programming model it it's very much like get to here then yield and then get to here then yield can get to here and yield which if you look at it you can write state machine code that ends up looking very linear even though it has a lot of uh breaking points in there and i'm certainly not personally an expert at async but uh derbio has been doing some really really incredible stuff and i've been meaning on on my vacation time i plan to go pick it up because i haven't used that um the opposite uh -huh. side of that is is Jonas, one of the other people at Ferris, has started writing a totally from scratch Rust Bluetooth stack called Rubble. Right. Um, but that's still definitely wow. at the point where he has plans of what it would take to get it to a production level, but we haven't found a customer who's willing to help us uh, fund those efforts yet. We'd love to do it, right. but certifying a Bluetooth stack takes a lot of time and effort and money, unfortunately.
Um, yeah. So right now, it's if you're a hobbyist, it's something fun to play around with. And because it's all in Rust, it's very easy to work with. Um, yeah. But in terms of that, uh, Derbio has done a really excellent job in the NRF soft device crate of, of coming up with a reasonable way to abstract over that. There's still some rough edges in terms of, like you said, compile time configuration. I don't know exactly how he handles all that because a lot of those... Actually, I think he doesn't use the NRFX library at all. I think he just uses the NRF soft device as a a binary object, essentially. So he doesn't have to worry about any of the compile time configuration. Well, it's, it's all yeah, it's all interrupt driven. I mean, I, I you know I've, I've had a look at that level. And I thought you know you know that that would be a lot of fun to go and sort of attack that. I can see it's, it's certainly plausible. Obviously, they've done it in C, but it's just kind of yeah. like. How much time have you got? You know, <laughs> I did a proof of concept like two or three years ago, where I, I basically just ran it against BindGen and got like a Hello World application running with a Rust application calling into the soft device. And that was yeah. always my policy. I was like, I want to do it. I want to wrap the NRF soft device. I know it's totally possible, but I didn't have a customer that could do it that wanted to do it, or I didn't have time just in hobby stuff uh, to do it. And I always thought I was like, oh, it's going to take a while. And then eventually, Drabio came along and was like, I wrote it. And I went, yes, <laughs> I'm so All glad right. someone else tackled that problem before I had to get to it. Like, so I'm very yeah. excited to see it and I'm excited to play around with it. Um, definitely come join the, I'm not sure if you're in the matrix room or anything like that, but there's a, there's a rust embedded matrix room and an NRF RS matrix room where we chat a lot about Nordic stuff. And then there's also all kinds of different matrix rooms for different ecosystems. Like STM 32 has one and um, some of the other folks have one, but Definitely, I know Derbio hangs out in the um, the Rust embedded in the NRF RS matrix rooms. I, I kind of want to say what is the matrix, but I'm just I better not go oh, it's, there. It's it's kind of a new federated <laughs> chat protocol. So think of like second generation federated IRC. So it's just another yeah. chat platform, but it's a it's an interesting one for open source folks because it is an open source protocol and it's federated, sort of like if you've seen any of the like other federated social media websites like Mastodon or things like that. It's very similar, but it's a chat protocol that is federated. Okay. So you can have like right. the matrix.org server, but then you can run your own and you can have authentication that works at different places and then sharing of messages and states. So you can kind of have like local hosting of chat rooms, but it feels to me very much just like a well done next generation IRC. I was very much an IRC person for a long time and yeah, matrix yeah. is eventually what won me over. Yeah, right. Okay. There you go. Something else I'd like for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I've got a lot of things to go and have a look at. Yeah, I think it's yeah. I think it's been a little over an hour and it's just past midnight for, for me here. So I really want to thank you for taking some time to chat with me. It's been super interesting to talk about Scala and state machines and Bluetooth and things like that. Is there anything in particular, any projects you're working on or things that you're really excited about right now that you particularly like to plug before we close out? Oh, well, so maybe Farmify, Farmify, so F-A-R-M-I-F-Y.com.au is a brand for IoT and agriculture. And so this is, this is we do on-farm connectivity using LoRaWAN mostly at, at this point. Um, and, you know, I've got a few devices I, I'm building next year uh, for that space. And my passion is agriculture um you know and and doing things there i feel like there's a lot of ag to tech but not a lot of tech to ag so that's you know the kind of that's what i want to change there a little bit but yeah i guess that's how um you know a lot of what i do sort of manifests itself 
Very cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking time early because I know we're, we're 13 hours apart from each. Is it 11 or 13? Uh, oh, uh, no, I don't think it's that much, but it's 10, 15 a.m. here. So I've got to go and do uh, a bit of Christmas shopping. Yeah, <laughs> it's midnight, midnight 15 here. So yeah. one go. day so, earlier. Yeah. Today's, now it is the 24th here, but good luck with your Christmas shopping. I hope you stay yeah, well. And fun. thanks again for taking the time to chat with me. Merry Christmas to you as well.